You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to Earth Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. That's right, folks. We are back, and we had a loss of a true legend in the comic industry recently, and I thought it was only appropriate that we dedicate a show to the man who pretty much brought to you the Batman that we know and love today to life. He has worked on a lot of the stuff that you saw on the TV show Arrow. You saw he he was amazing. And who we're talking about, of course, is Denny O'Neill. And he passed away last week at the age of 81. And it was a true loss to the industry. He was a true ambassador to the comic book field. He was a creative genius in a lot of ways, not just a writer, but as an editor, he brought a lot to the DC universe. Um, he'd had his stint in Marvel too. And we'll talk a little bit about that, but a man who's a genius in his own right. Let me introduce my co-host for this evening, Mr. Mike Gordon. Howdy. How are you, sir? I am peachy keen. Yeah. Ready to talk a little Denny O'Neill. Oh, always, always. Denny was a very uh, big inspiration for me. Um, and still is. Um, but, uh, yeah, I got a chance to meet him a couple times. Um, and, uh, I feel blessed about that. And, um, yeah, you know, they, they, it's that, that saying like, never meet your heroes, but in Denny's case, uh, it was, I mean, I'm so glad I did. Well, exactly. I've heard that, you know, whoever met, he was nice as could be to you. And I'm sure he had his moments as everybody does, but it wasn't like meeting his uh, partner in Batman, Neil Adams, who sometimes could be a little crotchety. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, look, I mean, Danny was getting up there. There was no, there was no hiding that uh, even though I, I saw him just last year. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, he was showing his age, but he was still kicking. So, um, but uh, yeah, it's, um, a big loss, and and I'm uh, I'm honored that we are devoting a show to him. Uh, I hope we are able, in some way, to do his uh, career justice. I hope so. I really, really hope so. But we've we got some to... good people to talk about it, so I I, I have faith in in us. Oh, I think we have some great folks lined up for it, and we definitely would love to hear from you guys at home. So please write us at earthstation one at esonetwork dot com. We definitely would love to hear what your thoughts are on Denny. We also, you know, want to give a shout out to our sponsor for this week, which is, of course, who we've been promoting for quite a little bit now, Tifosi Optical. That's right, folks. The fine folks at Tifosi Optical are back, and they are very happy with us here at the ESO Network and Earth Station One, and wanted to thank everyone for their support. And, of course, they are the home of the $25 sunglasses, which is amazing stuff, folks. If you ever want a pair of sunglasses... I would highly recommend Tifosi. And you know what? They even do have a uh, prescription uh, service available if you want to get a pair of sunglasses that are 
for those who were, you know, progressives or bifocals or even, you know, just regular prescriptions. So you can, you know, actually see when you're wearing your sunglasses and not just walking around like a zombie. Oh, I can't see, but I look cool in my Tifosi sunglasses. So for the important thing, of course it is looking cool. Of course. And all you have to do is go to TifosiOptics.com and say the ESO network sent you. And if you put the coupon code, ESO Network in there, you get 10% off your order. Not too bad, and especially if, you know, with summer coming up and, you know, being able to possibly get out to the park, to the beach, to just walk through your neighborhood. Wouldn't you really like to look cool in Tifosi Optical sunglasses? I think that's pretty awesome. So definitely check out our friend at TifosiOptics.com. All right, um, let's get started with this week's Rants and Raves, where we have a lot to talk about. You heard big name in wrestling is retiring he is went for his last ride at wrestlemania and he is basically turning in the hat and the gloves and he is now just mark he's no longer the undertaker Yeah, um, I've been watching the series on WWE Network Last Ride, and it's been a great uh, documentary series uh, documenting in the last uh, couple of years of uh, him uh, being active in the ring. And uh, I did find it odd that uh, he announced his retirement at the end of the documentary. Um, I know that, you know, things being what they are, um, I, I don't know how it was originally supposed to be written. Maybe, uh, the raw after WrestleMania, maybe, uh, you know, if they had gotten a chance to do WrestleMania in front of a live audience, like they wanted to, we would have had maybe a, a great match between him and AJ. Um, and, uh, and then maybe the next day he would have, he would have announced it or something like that. I don't know. I don't know what the plan was, but, um, uh, it just seemed like kind of an odd, odd thing. But, you know, I mean, I guess him just going into the performance center and, and making the announcement there probably wouldn't have gone over great either. So, I don't know. It's kind of a weird way to just announce it. But, I mean, yeah, apparently it is that is true and real this time. I mean, you know, we'll see. I mean, we thought he was done a few years ago and a few years after that. And <laughs> after that. I mean, he had a pretty rough last couple of years i'm not gonna lie some of those matches were downright ugly and, no they weren't uh, pretty at all some of them especially like that one he had against goldberg was just hideous yeah one of the worst ever and uh uh you know it's unfortunate that he wasn't able to cap his career off with a live you know actual match but the the video uh sort of uh, match the video the sort of cinematic match that he and AJ did uh, for WrestleMania was really fun. It was one of the highlights of the weekend, I think. Oh, I think it was one of the best parts of that weekend. And it was a good capper to the first night of WrestleMania. And, you know, it was pretty awesome. And, you know, I fully expected him to retire after his streak was broken. And, you know, I thought it would have been proper to do, you know, didn't expect it to be Brock, but, you know, that's cool. And I'm just happy that, you know, he's satisfied with his career and he's leaving on his terms, not that he's being forced out or anything. Cause that can and, get really ugly. And even with, uh, you know, the last couple of years being rough or whatever, um, look, no matter what, 
you know, that, that his legacy will not be tarnished. Um, 30 plus years, uh, I think, uh, as the undertaker, uh, main eventing, uh, almost every, <laughs> every pay-per-view he was on, um, staying with one company, uh, creating one of the best characters that's ever been created in, in pro wrestling. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing. I, I must admit that I was not, a, I, you know, I was trying to think of the first time I ever really recall seeing The Undertaker. And since I didn't get into pro wrestling and the WWE in particular um, until much later, until the Attitude Era, um, I was aware of him, but I wasn't really, like I couldn't say I was a big uh, fan or anything like, cause I just didn't know. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't see his debut. I hadn't seen any of his matches. Um, you know, I can't even remember, you know, if he was part of, you know, that stuff that I saw like in the, in the early eighties with uh, when Hulk Hogan and Hogan and Hulkamania was running wild. So, um, but I imagine like, I know you've been, you were watching it from a very early age. Did you, did you, do you remember his debut? Do you, did you see some matches that were early on? I remember before he was even in WWE because where I grew up in Maryland, they showed a lot of the NWA stuff mm-hmm. and he was there as mean Mark Callis. He was not even the undertaker yet. Mm-hmm. And then I remember him showing up as the undertaker at, was it? Um, it was not, it was the Thanksgiving show. Wasn't it Survivor Series? Yeah, it was Survivor Series. He showed up for the first time. And I thought, oh, that's a neat gimmick. You know, a dead guy and carry the guy. You know, it was Paul Bearer, who I knew as Percy already from watching AWA when we were in college and everything. And because he was Percy Pringle. And but it was neat to see him as, you know, Paul Bearer and holding the urn coming out and, you know, doing the whole gimmick and everything but then you know i went away from wrestling for a little bit but then i remember when i was working in radio i was working as a board op probably 1990 1991 uh wwf at the time was doing commercials and they it was a commercial for everyone remembers their first time with you know first kiss your first date you know that type of thing and then it goes all creepy and the first time with the undertaker (laughs) and they had the 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 thunder and the theme and it was like the ultimate warrior was going up against the undertaker at the capitol center in washington dc it was pretty awesome and just to hear the commercial i was like that's when i started getting interested again in his character and started watching during that period and you know i saw him i saw him all the way through from when he had he uh, had the cult under him and you know and after you know kidnappings of stephanie mcmahon and you know the whole you know thing with the underworld and everything and then he became the american badass so yeah but i watched him from afar i wasn't like oh the undertaker he's the reason i'm watching wwe you know type thing but yeah so i i knew him from way back when which is pretty awesome by the time i was really invested and getting invested in the wwe like i said it was the attitude era um he was uh i do remember his day debut as the american badass 
um, character. And it was just awesome. Uh, the time that I think the two times I saw Raw during that time, I went to a live Raw performance. He was there as the American Badass. So I've seen him as that character. I've never seen him as the full out goth uh, Undertaker character uh, live, unfortunately. But um, uh, yeah, I think I saw him, him. He was in a match. He teamed up. I think it was him and Kane, the Brothers of Destruction versus the Dudleys, if I'm not mistaken, which is, yeah, it was really awesome. Um, and, uh, and you know, uh, you know, like I said, his streak. Uh, so by the time I was watching, the streak was already a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just amazing. I mean, you, I mean, until, until it ended, you pretty much knew he was going to win. But man, did they make it look good. I tell you what, those, those last few that he had against Sean and Triple H were some of the best matches I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh, extremely so. And already by that point, he was having huge back problems. And But it, it, they still made him look really good. And he looked menacing as heck. I remember it was probably, probably now like six years ago, I took William to one of his first WWE matches. And we uh, went to see him. It was at Phillips Arena here in Atlanta, and I think it was a SmackDown taping. And he was William was like already through the moon. And then when you heard the gong, dun, William's head exploded. It was just awesome to see him walk down the aisle and everything. The lights turned blue. It was just it was awesome, and it was showmanship at its best. And that's one of the things they he did and he carried over so perfectly and he is looks you know he looks like even to this day is somebody i would not want to be on his bad side oh no i mean you know i mean he's a he's he's a tough tough sob right uh um and uh yeah i wouldn't mess with any of those guys really uh or girls uh i wouldn't yeah uh no anyway um but I uh, I remember distinctly, um, you know, the the uh, I think it was the Florida show and the the Orlando show, seeing uh, the WrestleManias uh, with you uh, at, uh, you know, when we were watching them in what was it uh, that uh, oh, that, that seafood restaurant over yeah, on Open yeah. Bridge? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so that uh, all of it, like the, a bunch of us would get together like there and, and watch it and. Uh, on closed closed circuit right uh, yeah. uh and uh and man like i said those matches were just ri- those like i said the, they told such great stories and even though you pretty much knew he was gonna win like there was they they made you doubt it like you were like well if anybody's gonna beat him it's gonna be sean or it's gonna be triple h and man i mean they were just epic and uh um and yeah, the 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 shadow that he is uh, that he has created over over wrestling for the last thirty years is amazing. The, I'm watching the um, you know the last ride, and he's talking about all the injuries. He's talking about how old he is and everything. And I realize like he's only you know he's only like two or three years older than me. <laughs> exactly. I was like thinking about that. I'm like it's just like. Um, I'm like, I, I wouldn't be able to like, you know, you could say what you want about what he you know, his last couple matches, but I wouldn't be able to even like take half that abuse. So, 
Oh God, no! Yeah, throw me through one table, I'd be retired right there. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think uh, I think all I do is like you know just one slam and I'd be done. I'd be like, I just uh, yeah. just just tombstone me and and call it a day. Exactly, um, he tombstone <laughs> you to hell, and that was it, brother. So, but yeah, uh, it was pretty awesome. And you know, I feel fortunate that I did get to see him live. And, me too. And so, you know, and it was, he brought us years of entertainment and, you know, it got to the point where at WrestleMania, all right, who's the undertaker going to challenge this year and everything, you know, and, you know, he would come out and point at the sign and then at the person and go across the neck and everything. And it was, it was, it was just awesome. It was. Yeah. He's got, you know, like I said, his body of work, uh, you know, is, is, is huge and and totally worth checking out um so uh you know the wwe network is available they have a free version now too so i'm not sure exactly what is on it but i'm sure the undertaker is represented uh all over it and i i don't think look um you know he might be retired in the ring but i find it hard to believe that we're not gonna see at some point him come out and and do his thing and just like because you know how many times have we seen you know other uh hall of famers uh, he's going right in the hall of fame next year that oh, is a without guarantee. a doubt without yeah. a doubt no <laughs> that i that i have no doubt about <laughs> and then uh you know i mean i would imagine they'll probably want to give him one final pop you know like let him let him come out and and to a crowd uh, it would be great if it was at a WrestleMania, maybe WrestleMania 2021, just because, uh, you know, he, 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 I think he deserves it. You know, he deserves one last uh, pop from the crowd. Well, uh, if you had a dream match, who would it be against? What, another one? Yeah, well, no. No, if you, I don't. If, I don't, if, I don't. In, if in WrestleMania 2021, you could pick anybody that he can go up against. I don't want to see him in the ring again. Okay. I, I like, I, I'm not saying I want to see him fight. I just like, he like, but I say like, he'll come out and make an appearance, you know, Okay. like he'll just come out and I don't know, maybe choke slam Elias again or, you know, something stupid, but, but um, well, everyone chokes uh, Elias. So it's okay. You know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what he's for. So yeah. <laughs> Elias is like the Kenny of the WWE. It's like, they but you know, like what? he just got hit by a car a week ago or whatever. Well, exactly. But he's <laughs> making more money than we are. So just well, remember. Of course. Yeah. Yes. That's not hard. Uh, yeah. I'm not making anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but um, look, I, I, I um, bottom line is that uh, he's one of the best. You know, he's one of the reasons to watch wrestling um he's compelling his matches are are legendary uh, a best of undertaker collection would take you days to watch um like i said the network is full of of do you have a favorite match of his besides like i mean i picked the 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 that those those four he did those wrestlemania ones the two with sean and the two with uh triple h is it what do you, what do you feel oh God, probably well. One of my favorite is the Hell in the Cell that he did with Mick Foley. Oh, that's legendary. Yeah, that's and, legendary. And so, literally, it's when I think of the Undertaker, that's just one of them that I, you know, that just stands out. And it's 
it's just awesome. And then probably um, his first um, WrestleMania that he did with Triple H mm-hmm. is that felt like that was going to go on forever. It just kept on going and going and going. And they both put on such a show. It was awesome. So. And I love his team up with, uh, you know, with Kane, uh, the Brothers of Destruction. Of course, they had feuds and, you know, various uh, angles over the years. But to me, like when when the Brothers of Destruction come out, it's like it gives me it gives me goosebumps. I, I just uh, I think that's one of the best teams ever in in wrestling. Well, exactly. So, you know, I think we have a lot of archives to go through. I think, yeah, <laughs> definitely, you know, to remember what The Undertaker did, it's pretty darn awesome. Yeah, he's definitely earned his uh, his rest and relaxation. It'll mm-hmm. be interesting to see where Mark pops up next, uh, what he does. Uh, you know, I don't know what the next chapter is, if he's just going to remain quiet or if he's going to help out at the Performance Center or, you know, I imagine, the, I imagine his ties with the WWE will not be cut completely. I imagine he'll be used in some sort of role if need be. Um, I think he does work. I think I've heard he does work well with the younger guys. So uh, hopefully they, they use his knowledge and uh, he just uh, lives a happy life with his family. Cause the other thing that was devastating uh, around the same time as WrestleMania is that he lost his brother, like, uh, like right before WrestleMania uh, this year. And that, that weighed on him too. And he, I don't know if, you know, I mean, now I think he has, but I mean, he had to process that and do the WrestleMania thing. And it really didn't want, you know, uh, it was just, and, you know, COVID was happening and he was away from his family and it was just a tough time for him. Uh, and that, so I'm sure that's not the way he wanted to go out, but um, the documentary series, the last ride, I think it's five, six episodes, something like that. It's definitely worth watching. I definitely recommend, re- recommend that series. Awesome. So you could definitely check it out on the WWE network. And so, Folks, let's take a quick break, and we will be back in a moment, and we are going to be looking all about the career of Denny O'Neill. Hi, this is Ashley Pauls with this week's Box Office Buzz. We've got some new movies coming out on streaming services to chat about this week. The first one we're going to take a look at is the family fantasy film, Artemis Fowl, which is coming out on Disney+. Plus. Now, this movie was originally supposed to premiere in theaters, but it's probably for the best that it didn't because I have a feeling it would have been a box office flop. This one is not getting great critical responses. Rotten Tomatoes was pretty brutal, calling it a would-be franchise starter that will anger fans and befuddle newcomers. Ouch. It's really a shame because I enjoyed the Artemis Fowl book series that this movie is originally based on. I listened to the audiobooks while working on a home project and found it to be a really fun story. In case you're not familiar with the original concept, it's about a boy genius who interacts with these fantasy creatures, kind of still in a modern setting. Think of it as a little like Men in Black meets the Chronicles of Narnia. Anyway, I always feel bad for an author when their book series just doesn't translate to film that well. And unfortunately, it's looking like this one will probably not get a sequel based on how it's been received. 
I saw someone on social media call it one of the three worst movies they'd ever seen, so not exactly a glowing review. However, something that is getting better reviews is The Five Bloods, the new Spike Lee film on Netflix. It's about four black veterans during Vietnam and talks about the long-term impact of the Vietnam War and what that impact was on both a national and personal level. Finally, we have the comedy drama, The King of Staten Island, which is getting good reviews, not quite as good as Defy Bloods, but certainly better than Artemis Fowl. It stars SNL's Pete Davidson as a young man who's trying to cope with a childhood tragedy that's made him difficult for him to grow up emotionally. And throughout this film, he has to learn to face that past grief and make peace with it so that he can really move forward into his future. And that's what we have to look at on streaming this week. I know that some movie theaters across the country are looking at tentatively reopening. If you decide to go, please remember to keep wearing your mask, washing your hands. I know it's not fun. We're all getting tired of it, but it's important to do what we can, each of us, in order to keep our friends, family, and community members safe. I'm Brittany Vitrino. And I'm Martha Bartlett. We've been nerds since day one, and we love to talk. And now we're your hosts of But But First, Let's Let's Talk Nerdy. Come listen if you like anything from comics, anime, video games, sci-fi, and even history. Just sit back, relax, even join us with a drink in hand, because we'll have one in ours too, and come talk nerdy with us every Tuesday. We are now a proud member of the ESO Network, and you can download wherever you like to listen. See you next Tuesday. Everyone, welcome back to Earth Station One, and now we're going to talk about the life and times of one Mr. Denny O'Neill, who started work uh, in Marvel. Actually, it was his first real comic job, and he working under Roy Thomas, who brought him on, and basically, probably what 1965. So you're looking at 55 years, and that's just an amazing career that he had but he's mostly known for his dc comic work and mr mike you ready to take it away i am but first we have to introduce our our two guests uh here with us uh uh once again we are blessed to have someone from chicken town kevin elders is back with us <laughs> hello uh, and a reminder the winner of earth station one comic book trivia right i got the belt yeah, it's true. I, I, I do believe, yes, I do believe you're holding the belt. But I've heard the Undertaker's coming out of retirement to take you. <laughs> yeah, he, he is, probably... it, is, is it 24-7? Is that the rule here? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Undertaker <laughs> might be a little stronger on Marvel stuff than me, so I'm probably going to lose the belt. But right well, now think, it's mine. It's mine. I think, I think we're under some sort of contractual obligation now to have someone from Chicken Town every episode now. Um, <laughs> I have uh, all the questions no. ready for you, Kevin. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, we also have with us, uh, it's been a while, but uh, Michael Bailey is back with us. Hey, I'll take Kevin on in comic trivia. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm just going to surrender the belt right now. <laughs> 
Uh, that's a smart move. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> talking about it, this could get ugly real quick. <laughs> <laughs> there is uh, so much to cover uh, with uh, the life and career of uh, one Denny O'Neill that uh, it's going to be tough to do in the time allotted. But I want to get right to it and and talk about, um, if you would, your your first sort of awareness or maybe the first story that you read. Uh, that Denny was involved with, um, your sort of introduction to Denny O'Neill. Um, we'll start with you, Kevin. Uh, do you um, do you recall what that might have been? Yeah, more or less. He's one of those guys that was kind of always around for as long as I've been reading comics. And you know, he was writing a lot for DC in the 70s. And that's how I started was reading DC comics in the 70s. So even though back then, like I wasn't necessarily paying a lot of attention to the names in the credits, you know, I was a little kid, but certainly um, I was reading Green Lantern and not, not, I know we're going to go into Green Lantern, Green Arrow, the Neil Adams stuff from the early seventies, but uh, he came back to Green Lantern when they started up in the later seventies, he was writing it again. And that's when I was becoming a regular Green Lantern writer. So that was probably among my first uh, Denny O'Neill works. And uh, also I know I got the, my first issue of Detective Comics was when it was in the dollar comics format, the big thick anthology uh, format for right. Detective. Yep. And uh, Denny was writing the Batman stories in Detective at that point. And the first issue of Detective that I got was the issue with the death of Batwoman involving the, oh, the, yeah. the the league of assassins and bronze tiger and all that stuff Danny was writing that so yeah definitely some of my early comics exposure in the uh, mid to late 70s Danny was there absolutely absolutely uh michael bailey what about you the the first comics i ever read were in uh there are two volumes with similar names superman from the 30s to the 70s and batman from the 30s to the 70s they were in the school library in my elementary school. So two of the first comics I ever read were Denny O'Neill books. You had Secret of the Waiting Graves and Batman from the 30s to the 70s, which seven-year-old Mike was really creeped out by. I, I just wanna <laughs> I, I just wanna say that. Him drawing on the the tombstones at the end really freaked me out. And over in Superman, they had his first issue, which was 233, Superman Breaks Loose. Uh, where he came on to Superman to have Superman's powers and not have them, but have them, which with an L in there and uh, get rid of kryptonite. And both of those pretty much went away as soon as he was off the book. But I, um, so it's, it's like to me when, when it was announced that he had passed away, I'm like somebody who's in my DNA of comic books was now left to the earth and, uh, really had an impact on me and uh, the uh, the only other thing I want to say real quick is yeah he killed the earth one bat woman and then did not avenge her at all I read the stories that followed that and it was always him <laughs> getting distracted with something else <laughs> so yeah it wasn't exactly an event back then they just kind of <laughs> would just slip in these deaths here and there and then just move on uh Mike favor um, for me, I first discovered Denny O'Neill. It was some kind of reprint or something of Batman 237, uh, which was Batman, oh, what was it? Batman Night of the Reaper. That was it. And okay. 
it was I liked it because Batman was going up to Rutland, Vermont, to the Halloween parade, and basically he was dressed in as Batman, and that he nobody noticed it, and it was like right when um, Batman was getting away from the campy era, and it was this guy who was dressed up as the Grim Reaper with a real sickle was killing people up there and he ended up he ended up that he was chasing after ex-nazis and he but the guy lost his humanity he was a concentration camp survivor which was pretty heavy for back then and then it was pretty amazing to read and i was like hooked from that point with between neil adams art and denny's you know denny's you know stories and everything was just awesome and then i started reading the reprints of the uh green arrow green lantern stories and it was it was just awesome his stuff was just like nothing else i had read we had talked said similar stuff about roy thomas but it always felt like roy thomas was more of the space out there type of guy who then sometimes went to you know had a love for world war ii heroes and such where denny was got gritty and dirty he you know literally was right in the trenches with batman right beside him it was awesome yeah um uh, much the, the same uh particularly with kevin um uh the experience was the same for me um because growing up reading dc and particularly batman I don't think I was aware that there was a different Batman before then. I didn't realize, you know, how, how much he had changed or how much he, you know, influenced the character, both him and Neil, because it was just the Batman that I was reading. Um, the, the first, I think the first, uh, I, I mean, it's hard for me to place exactly what, you know, cause I wasn't paying attention to creators at the time, but um, I do know that, um, and I had 1979, they came out with a um, Best of DC Blue Ribbon Digest. These, these were smaller uh, digest comics, oh, not quite, uh, just a little bit maybe wider than paperbacks. And uh, this one celebrated Batman's 40th anniversary. And it had a lot of early stories in it um, from um, uh, Jerry Robinson and Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Um, but it ended, uh, I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, I think the, on the, right on the cover, it says something like, uh, you know, including a novel length battle with the Joker, you know, story. And that was a reprint of Joker's five way revenge. And, uh, that definitely made me uh, a fan of both Batman and the Joker. I mean, it was very different Batman and Joker than I had seen, you know, in, in the, uh, in the cartoons and in the 60s series, which I was loving uh, in syndication, but man, there was something about that. I mean, that story in particular just made me, I just wanted to reach out and get every single Batman versus Joker comic I could get my hands on. And I still kind of feel that way. Um, but uh, I've been reading, I've been reading Batman and Detective pretty much uh, pretty consistently ever since then. Um, so, so yeah, it definitely uh, for me it was it, it was his influence on the Bat books. But then later on, you know, he did so much. Um, it, there's like I said, so much to talk about. Um, if we go in order, like Mike said, uh, he started out at Marvel. 
Um, is there anything regarding his Marvel work that uh, you guys feel needs to be, should be addressed or pointed out? Um, uh, Michael Bailey, do you have anything there that uh, of note? Not, not that just uh, springs to my mind. He was, he was brought in by Roy Thomas and was kind of writing things that Roy and Stan weren't writing. So it was like Millie the model and he wrote a couple Dr. Strange stories so I don't think, and uh, some daredevil, but I don't think he made any kind of like big impact. Uh, there, there's no story from that era that it's like, Ooh, it's a Denny O'Neill story No, uh, that, that would come later. Yeah. I think the only thing that I saw looking at the research was that uh, he and Neil Adams revived uh, professor X and X-Men. So um, I would imagine that was probably a kind of a big deal, but I don't know how it was treated. I, I'm not a big X-Men fan. So I don't know if that was, you know what, what how that was written or what that looked like so i think what, um, one of the interesting things about his career uh dating back to that first stint at marvel is just the fact that he was there at that time because yeah. that's unusual like if you look at just the history of creators getting into comic books there's a gap in the 60s where not a lot of people are getting into comics because the the people making the comics in the 1960s for the most part were the same guys that were there since the 40s mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that was the same bunch of guys those creators and uh denny was among the few who were kids reading comics in the golden age in the 40s you know De- denny was born in uh 1939 he's the same age as batman so you know, he he was a little kid reading golden age comics and you could say the same for roy thomas who also got into comics in the mid 60s and neil adams and that's a short list you know it's mostly guys who were a bit older than them or a bit younger that 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 you know grew up on the 50s and 60s comics that came on late 60s into the 70s you know len ween and jerry conway and so on so it's that's one of the things that set denny apart is just the timing of his entry into comics was unusual and and another thing about that is that unlike roy and and some other writers of that era he didn't come in from the fan press he was a journalist that uh happened to know roy thomas's parents so he did a local boy makes good type article and wrote a couple articles about comics. And then Roy sent him the, the writing test and he did that and moved to New York and started writing for Marvel comics. So it's, you know, like he comes from a journalism background instead yeah, he, of writing, being a letter hack or something like that. Yeah, Literally yeah. he showed up in New York and he went to the Marvel offices. And when he got there, it was closed. Nobody was there. It was like, it's a weekday. What's going on? And it ended up being a Jewish holiday. And him being from Missouri, he had no idea what a Jewish holiday was. <laughs> and so he didn't have Roy Thomas's number, but he had uh, he was able to look up Flo's uh, number who ran the Marvel office. And yeah. she had to explain it to him and say, show up tomorrow. We'll to get take care of you. Here's, you know all the information you need. And it was like, had to explain it all to him. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. I definitely uh, saw that in, in this history too, that I thought that was uh, interesting was that um, unlike Roy Thomas, who was like the ultimate fanboy getting the job, right. Uh, Denny was like, 
not <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like he came at it from a completely different viewpoint, which is great. Cause I think to your point, Kevin, that's what comics kind of needed was somebody who was coming from the outside and, and looking at it from a different perspective instead of just doing the same thing. So not just not complaining about Roy at all. I mean, we did a whole episode on him. And so I know everybody should know how, how much we feel and respect him, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, he was, uh, he got his degree in English literature, creative writing, philosophy. Um, he was a journalist at the, you know, uh, before he went to, to Marvel and he just kind of did it as a, he did the test as kind of a joke and, 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 and got the job. So, um, so it was really amazing that he, he took it upon himself to do the job. I guess, I guess it was well better paying than, than his, uh, newspaper work in Missouri. I guess it got him to the city, right? It got him to New York. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so he's in Marvel for a little bit. Then he goes, uh, while he's at Marvel, he does some work for Charlton uh, under a pseudonym. So, because uh, he doesn't want Marvel, I guess, to know. Um, and then uh, he gets work at DC and then you know, history starts to be made. Um, I don't know much about his his work at Charlton during those years. I I do you guys know anything about that? I think as it was a lot of note? pre, you know, it was pre like the question and pre, you know, blue beetle and stuff like that. I don't think he worked on any of those. Yeah. yeah I, I, I don't really know. Yeah, I think the, the most interesting thing about it was that his, his pseudonym was Sergius O'Shaughnessy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is from a Norman Mailer novel. Oh, wow. Uh, that he, because uh, he was a really big fan of Norman Mailer and he had seen uh, this, this is, I actually got this from the horse's mouth uh, years ago at Dragon Con. He had seen a play of a play, uh, somebody had adapted it into a play the night before. So since it was uh, <laughs> before Neil Adams said, I'm not doing a pseudonym, uh, <laughs> like everybody would, would do a pseudonym like Gene Colan, I think was Adam Austin when he worked for other companies. So, uh, you know, O'Neill, of course, shows this really esoteric, uh, like kind of flowery name. And uh, that's a name that he used even once in a while, even at DC for if Mm -hmm. there were, if there were for whatever reason, if there was a book that he didn't want his name to be on, he would use (laughs) that. There are some DC books floating around out there with the name Sergius O'Shaughnessy as the writer. Interesting. I, uh, yeah, I wasn't, that was all new to me, actually, when uh, doing this. But um, and the Charlton, uh, his Charlton work, um, probably most importantly, is that he was working with Dick Giordano, mm-hmm. and then so when, when yes. Dick when Dick Giordano jumped over to work at DC, he brought in the guys that he knew from Charlton, right. guys like Jim Aparo and Steve Skates and and Denny. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's, yeah, that's, I was going to say, like, I think the biggest thing to come out of his work at Charles is that he went to DC. <laughs> it got him a job at DC, really. And um, also under kind of uh, unfortunate circumstances as well, because yeah. I, I know Denny has told the story of he had no idea at the time that the reason DC was hiring new writers is because they had cut loose a bunch of their old writers because the, some of the older guys were asking for, health insurance or some additional silly some, things some, like some, that yeah, what, yeah. could you help us out with some benefits of some sort and dc's response was we're not going to give these guys work anymore let's hire some cheap young guys instead and that's why they were phasing out guys like john broom and gardner fox and, and, and arnold, uh, arnold drake. drake yeah some of these names you stopped seeing in the credits now uh, denny had no idea 
that he was <laughs> replacing guys that were uh, just looking for a little financial help. So yeah, I Arnold he, Drake. I he felt uh, bad about that years later. Yeah, Arnold Drake quotes uh, Jack Leibowitz, who was still uh, one of the high muckety mucks at, at national periodicals at the time. And apparently Leibowitz was like, you know, when he was talking to them, he's like, hey, guys, you know, I, I kind of side with you because, you know, I was a, I was a, uh, like a, not a communist, but, you know, like a rabble rouser in my youth. And Arnold Drake said the problem is he had a youth of three days. So it's not <laughs> like he remembers it. Yeah, it's, that, that, it's so weird that he, you know, the concept of, of, of having benefits as a creator really even didn't ke- start catching on until the eighties uh, in a big way at either company. But yeah, these, these guys are just like, we're old. <laughs> we have families, we want insurance. And they're like, okay. Well, that was we'll also the whole thing. Kids. That was also the whole thing behind the hero initiative mm-hmm. because, you know, none of these people who were legends in the industry who were retiring had anything to fall back on and they were living in poverty because they didn't own the rights to these characters or you know, and a lot of these characters were making millions for the companies, but these people these, who were these creating... were guys that were, they'd been writing for DC since the 1940s. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then it was 20 exactly. years later. It's like, yeah, all right, who's next? Exactly. Yeah. You're just the face. Uh, Bye. You know, and that's one of the crappy things about it. And uh, it was like uh, hearing an interview with Denny. It was like he said, if he knew that was going on, he wouldn't have done it. But you know it wasn't very well known at the time what was going on. Yeah. No, they, it's not like they wanted it public. Um, you know, cause he, and, he, he was like saying they were making something like $11 a page or something to write. Wow. And I was like, you know, and they were happy with it. Well, yeah. I mean, it is a lot. Yeah. I could see that. Um, um, so Denny gets to work at DC um and uh works on several um books uh i think the first series that uh he works on correct me if i'm wrong but the first series that he really like gets to handle and make an impact on is 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 it wonder woman or justice league right I, I, I'm not sure which came first. Wonder yeah. Woman, he he definitely made a huge impact on. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. not oh, for yeah. the better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's something he, he later regretted. Yes, but, yes. you know, it, I think it was one of those things that was done with the best of intentions. Sure. Uh, because he took away her powers and he made her like a Diana Rigg, you know, hip mod. She owned a She owned a shop and learned Kung Fu from a master known as uh, known as i ching i ching yeah. and uh just basically the, they took the most powerful female character at dc and said we're just going to make her quote-unquote normal yeah. uh which wasn't his intention but it kind of ended up being one of those uh noble failures is that a good way to refer to it because yeah. yeah i mean i think it's yeah the be- he had good intentions but um, yes, I, I definitely think that uh, it did it did more harm than good at the time. Um, but I think also, um, uh, yeah, I know he looks back on it, and yeah, so yeah, it's kind of a rough. Uh, a lot of his early stuff at DC is kind of like eek. Um, but um, uh, yeah, that those books are. It is. It's it's weird to read those books now because I've you know I've read uh, a lot of that stuff now and. 
um, and it, it just feels like it's a different character completely. So I don't know. I mean, he did major, a major shift to Wonder Woman there. That's for sure. And that wasn't that when she, to... she is that when she quit the Justice League as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It was right around that same time because it was like they wanted to make changes into the Justice League. Yeah. And they got also rid of Martian Manhunter for a long time. Right. So you have your most powerful woman character not only like changing in her own book, but then leaving like the biggest superhero team, you know? Then they made her go through like a year long trial to get yeah. back, back into the Justice League. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, very, very strange. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, elongated man, just you can join right away. Just come on in, Wonder Woman. Yeah, jump through some hoops for like a year before we take it back. And I, I think Denny seemed to be, in general, over the course of his career, not comfortable with the godlike powered characters. No. And so you can right. see him. Let's let's depower Wonder Woman. Obviously, he was part of, uh, like, like Michael said depowering of superman and mm. you know he, he had a, a little run on justice league he was not comfortable writing justice league and he asked to be taken off jla uh after a while just because it's what do i do with all these <laughs> ridiculously superpowered characters all gathered together as a team how do you make that work which he could do he, he, i like his jla stories but that that's not where he was happiest writing well, exactly. And he kind of did the same thing with Green Lantern when he mm-hmm. teamed, yes. Up, yes. teamed him up yeah. with uh, Green Arrow to d- rediscover America. And yeah, there's no like, there's no, he took the cosmic out of Green Lantern, really. Exactly. It was all stories set in small town America or, you know, touched on the issues of going to the, to Harlem or going to deal with uh, Green Arrow's, you know, sidekick speedy getting you know hooked on heroin and you know dealing with you know they didn't that was stuff that you know they'd never dealt with before in the comics and denny was right there yeah um i think that yeah that's a good leading because i think one thing that is justice league run did do i think is lead right to his work on green lantern green arrow um, because I think he was more interested in in having these characters be more street level. And it's interesting going back to those stories today because a lot of what he's what they talked about never got fixed because you can't ultimately you can't fix it. But when you you know there was a time period in the early two thousands where it was kind of popular to poke fun at the. Uh, the scene in Green Lantern, Green Arrow 76, where the old African-American man says, you know, I've seen that you've helped, that you work for the blue skins and you helped the orange skins, but what have you ever done for the black skins? And the pithy response is, well, I saved the world, but that wasn't the point of what he was trying to say. He, he told Neil Adams to draw the face of a man who lived the hardest life imaginable. And, you know, they didn't travel as much as I would, I thought they would Mm -hmm. when I bought those, I bought the trade paperbacks in 94 that came out and I thought, well, this is just going to be them traveling and they were pretty much done traveling within six issues, but that (laughs) didn't stop them from still dealing with the, with the issues they were. And I love the fact that Stan Lee rightfully so gets credit for, bucking the comics code 
yeah. and telling a story about Norman uh, Harry Osborne yeah. being addicted to pills. But it was Denny O'Neill and 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 Neil Adams that said, "No, we're going to have Speedy shooting up on the cover of a DC comic." <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I, I think we're all better for it because Denny's approach was he said this in that Comic Book Heroes Unmasked uh, documentary that was on the History Channel back in two thousand three. He's like, my generation had messed up, but if I could get a really smart 12-year-old, maybe I could make a difference in that generation. And I think between that and his journalism background, uh, I think it was uh, Faber, because I can't say Mike, because there's three of us on the call. (laughs) What can Uh, you say? It's popular. Yeah, but... uh, I feel like I've interrupted a meeting of the Council of Michaels. <laughs> well, Mike but, Faulkner's uh, knocking at the door if we want to let him out. But I think it's because of that journalism background, those stories, you know, you could you could look at them and go, well, the moral of this story is, but really it was dealing, I mean, if you had told, if you had taken those stories and turned them into like a late 70s live action TV show, it would feel right at home. Mm-hmm. Because they had that kind of mature grit to them. Yeah, and, and it was episodic, and uh, so yeah, it, it would. It, it does kind of feel like the pacing of a TV series. That's interesting. And it was um, that was a shockwave. It was a lightning bolt to the comic book industry when 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 that run started with uh, Green Lantern seventy six. The the fans went out of their minds the fan press of the time the you know fandom was becoming organized by the early 70s and it was is everyone seeing what they're doing in green lantern people couldn't believe it it won all the awards all the fan awards shazam awards and, and uh, whatever awards they had back then so it was critically acclaimed huge with the fans it didn't sell particularly well as far as to the mainstream you know newsstand comic book audience and this acclaimed historic important run of comics just kind of petered out green lantern was canceled and the run the denny o'neill neil adams run of these stories ended as a backup strip in the flash for the, the last couple of stories mm-hmm. isn't it just like hal to like crash out on his best friend's couch when yep. he, he, he <laughs> and the, I, the uh... stories are a little uh heavy-handed if, if you read them today that i i they're, again, they're important and they're so of their time. They don't quite hold up to our modern uh, expectations when we go to read a story these days. You have to really put them in their historical context. Uh, they're beautiful. It, it's some of Neil Adams' best work and uh, just so important that, yeah, Denny was tackling one important contemporary issue facing America after another every single story. I had not uh, actually read much of that run uh, until recently, um, a few, a couple of years ago. Uh, the first time I met Denny O'Neill, I was at uh, SE Comic-Con a few years ago and, and Neil Adams was there as well. And I purchased the, you know, beautiful, absolute hardcover of the Green Lantern, Green Arrow run, um, which is just the best way to, to, <laughs> to read that, although it's pretty heavy. Um, so, uh, um, but, um, 
Um, and then I, and I dove right in after that. And I read that uh, run and I was, yeah, I mean, you know, for something that's like, oh, uh, this is really groundbreaking and everything. It, it, it almost feels a little anticlimactic when you read it. Cause you're like, oh, well that's, you know, I mean, you, it, in context, that sort of thing hadn't been done. And I think to the point, I mean, I don't, I, we've kind of alluded to it here, but you know, cause we've mentioned his journalist background and everything like that, but let's face it. Denny O'Neill has always been an activist that leans very much to the left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and that comes through in everything he does. Uh, I mean, he doesn't, you know, and not in a bad way. I'm not saying, cause actually, you know, his work on, on many of the books and including the Green Lantern, Green Arrow run was that he had both, both sides that he could, you know, debate these topics against. And, and I think he treated both of them pretty fairly overall. Um, but I mean, that's, that's, that was his purpose. I mean, I think he, he wanted to make these uh, stories count for something and say more than just having two, you know, superpower beings beating the tar out of each other. Cause I don't think that, I don't know if that ever interested him. <laughs> looking at, looking at his body of work, I can't see where that ever it was an interest to him. It's just to have like, you know, two, two big guys beating on each other. Yeah. Um, and that said, uh, Green Lantern was still Green Lantern in these stories. Sure. He was yeah. Oh, yeah. powered and dealing with the guardians of you know, one of the guardians of the universe transformed himself into an earth man to ride along with them. That's true. <laughs> Allah Opsi. I always call him Allah Ali Ali Oxen Free. It's kind of a weird yeah. name. It, it was a quartet for much of the run because uh, Black Canary was along as well. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, so let's talk about his work on Batman. Uh, we could do whole yeah. months and months of podcasts regarding uh, his Batman run. But, oh, God, um, yeah. Because uh, it's just, I mean, I don't know what else more we can say about it, but it's uh, its groundbreaking. It's, um, you know, because prior to Denny and Neil coming over and taking over this book, I mean, I think the book had suffered from uh, a lack of direction. I mean, the, the, the shadow of the 60s series was still on the character and it took these two guys, uh, you know, separately. And then in, in conjunction with one another to just really bring Batman down to the street level, um, introduce these characters that uh, like some mysticism, like with, uh, with uh, the demon story in and of itself, I think, which was just um, hugely creative. Yeah, I mean, he he took Batman and he did two different types of stories. He did the Batman who is on the streets of Gotham uh, fighting, you know, the, the, the dregs of humanity while also, you know, having contacts all over town and, you know, living in a penthouse apartment, which was, I think, started right before he started writing the book, but it was right around that time period. And then you had globetrotting James Bond Batman with the most <laughs> James Bond villain yeah. ever uh Ra's al Ghul. Oh god, uh, yeah. Know, it's just like, you know, you, you have these these, these two kind of different feels, but they both felt like Batman. Yeah. You know, it's just are, like are you, talk, are you talking about shirtless Batman? Yeah, shirtless nipple <laughs> Batman with his hairy chest. And he I, I found out this recently from an interview because I think like a lot of people I started going back and listening to other podcasts that had him on. I did not know that Leslie Tompkins uh, who he created in the story mm-hmm. There's No Hope in Crime Alley yep, was right. based on Dorothy Day, one of the people that founded the Catholic Worker newspaper. Oh, wow. Uh, 
and he created her specifically to have a voice that says you don't have to be violent because especially later in his life he really turned to non-violence i don't think he would have gotten the batman stories from the 70s out of the bat out of the denny o'neill of the 2000s but just having that as a voice in there though as you know like this is this is a woman that you know became something else and people did terrible things to her right around 2005 but Hmm. it was this kindly old woman that was there for bruce wayne and was just trying to kind of poke batman and say there is another path to this and batman going i don't see it sorry (laughs) nope i'll just beat up people don't worry (laughs) well correct me if i'm wrong but wasn't that one of the first characters that kind of challenged him Mm-hmm. And his yeah, crusade, it, like his yeah. before that, he was just Batman doing his thing. And then you have this character that's like, no, what you're doing is wrong, uh, and and or the way you're going about it is wrong, and you're putting you're putting children at, at risk, and you know, like you're challenging like everything, you know. Um, that was that was that character really. Yeah, and just the just the kind of you you mentioned the story with the with the holocaust survivor uh i didn't get that oh really apparently apparently siri is not familiar with the holocaust not at all we just wow she's one of those huh (laughs) i knew it i knew it does does this really surprise anybody that just completely threw off everything i was about to say no i i i think it was just having that idea that you know in addition to bringing batman back to like the dark mysterious creature of the night he was one of the writers that was working to kind of challenge you know who batman is as a person because you know i've i've read i haven't read every single batman story because i think i'd go mad uh i i think right around 1954 i would just go completely insane well yeah but <laughs> when you look at batman stories before the bronze age they were very plot driven they were you know this weird thing this villain is doing this and batman has to stop him even the the stories that were right when Julius Schwartz took over as editor, they were all, Hey reader, can you figure out the, the, who did, who did it before Batman can? And uh-huh. it was O'Neill and it was Frank Robbins and the like that just came in and said, no, this is, this is a human being that is, you know, he, he, he they didn't, they didn't go like full Frank Miller kind of pointing to the fact that he's a crazy but I think they pointed to the fact that there's a lot, there's a serious complexity to the character. And I think one of the classic stories that illustrates that was the Batman Nobody Knows, where mm. this, this like 10 page story where he takes these kids camping, which you probably wouldn't see today because creepy. But, uh, oh, come on. Know, he he lived with kids, a little boy. Come on. And an old man in a cave, as they joke about on the Drew Carey show. Um, but he takes these kids camping and they're all inner city kids and they all have these like fanciful ideas of who Batman is. And he comes out in the Batman costume because apparently to these kids, Bruce Wayne's a cosplayer and they're not scared of him. And he's just like, the only people that are going to be scared of me are criminals. And it's just, that's a self-awareness that you wouldn't have gotten 
in the 60s or the 50s. No, not at all. And then he had a huge, huge stack up against him coming off of the Batman TV show and, Mm -hmm. you know, all the camp and everything to make these characters scary again or, you know, to take seriously. And, you know, and he did it. He succeeded at it, you know, you know, bringing, you know, making the Joker a murderer again, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, horrific and, you know, just. And, you know, even that, or bringing back characters like Two-Face and Mm -hmm. stuff like that, because Two-Face hadn't been seen in almost 15, 20 years at that point. Yeah, I mean, he was almost on the television series, but they decided that wasn't going to work. Right. Right. So (laughs) it it would have been difficult. Instead, we got False Face. Um, Yeah. Yeah. but no, I'm like, I agree with you as far, and I was just about to mention that too. I mean, not only did he change uh, Batman and have someone, you know, really challenge and find out like, so we can really get to the grits of what that character is, but the whole rogues gallery got an upgrade. And and I think, yes, Joker most notably uh, with that, you know, with that uh, five-way revenge story in particular, mm-hmm. um, but by, you know, making uh, there's... <laughs> Every time I think of that story, and it's kind of come up recently in my thoughts too, because every time, especially now when I think of that story, because I think of that that image of the Joker standing on on Batman's neck, mm-hmm. uh, oh, and it's just uh, like, yeah, yeah, it's just like, yeah, that, uh, yeah. that's an image uh, that's uh, right there now, uh, kind of relevant mm. uh, in some ways. Um, not that it has anything to do with it, but um, it's just a weird kind of image that's similar. Um, but um, I think. I don't know if he, now tell me if I'm wrong, but I think he created Arkham Asylum, right? Like this Arkham Asylum is created at this time. So now you, all these, all the rogues gallery or most of them anyway, don't go to prison. There are, uh, they've got, they've all got psychological issues. So it adds a whole different layer to every single one of them too. Yeah. It was originally Arkham Hospital. Uh, which is an H.P. Lovecraft reference. Oh, interesting. Uh, cool. And, and it was, it was basically just, it, like the whole gothic c- conceit of what Arkham is now was not what it was when it was first created. It was it was a hospital. It was it was like any other kind of seventies era medical facility. But it beca- but it set the stage of having, like you said, a place. You know, before that, the Joker would just go to jail. Yep. yep. And Batman and Robin would show up at the end of the story and make fun of him. Uh, that happens so much. It's, it's really kind of, well, uh, I kind of feel for him after a while. It was kind of, it's kind of interesting though, because Arkham was actually based off of, especially the look and feel of it was based off of the mental hospital in one who flew over the cuckoo's nest Mm -hmm. and, you know, very shabby, very kind of run down and not this pristine, you know, you know, hospital where they could be treated. It was, you know, with the doors, with the bars, and it was, it was just amazing. And Denny, you know, put them all together, almost like to make a true pressure cooker for Batman to have to go up against. And, and ironically, both the Joker and the Penguin were in the movie version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So yes, they were. <laughs> a, along, oh. with Doc, along with Doc Brown. It's pretty amazing. Wow. My head just exploded. <laughs> it's never, my trick, guys. I've never I do put it that together time. before. Yeah. No, no, I'll never be able to watch that movie again the same way. Um, <laughs> 
Um, all right. So um, I think we'll, we will probably get back to his work on Batman as well. Um, but uh, moving on, um, uh, he, he also does uh, work on Superman. And as uh, you guys have already mentioned, the first thing he does is, uh, you know, depower him uh, and takes away kryptonite. Um, which is weird because you think that would be at cross purposes, <laughs> like eliminating kryptonite and then depower, like, like wouldn't like having like, like if you take away kryptonite, then you take away like his big weakness. Right. That well, doesn't seem like it's going to depower him, but he does other things. Right. It doesn't, he, he yeah. does something where like, he, it like reduces his powers by a good amount. Right. So in the story, uh, Superman breaks loose the accident that, turns all of the kryptonite on earth into iron creates this sand creature that over the course and this was this was very different from the time period over the course of like almost 10 issues is leeching away superman's powers uh and in that also in 233 morgan edge who had recently bought through wgbs the daily planet makes Mm. clark kent a television reporter that's right. Is and that when he had a, the mobile studio? Yes, that is when he had the mobile studio. And it wasn't until the 1978 movie that he went back to writing for the Daily Planet. So that change kind of stuck around for a while. Mm-hmm. But in, if you read Denny O'Neill's Superman stories, one, they're written by somebody who really doesn't like writing Superman stories. And I don't say that as as being snarky. I'm saying that because Denny O'Neill has said it a thousand times. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, so, but it was really a time period where Superman was always kind of maudlin, especially in the in the '60s. Whenever he would talk about Krypton and think about his home world, you know, he would get you know you would see the little sob uh, in the in the word balloon. But it was it's really weird reading those stories now because I don't know what Silver Age fans would have thought of that because they're so different from what was in the Superman title that was going on at that time uh, before, before Denny came on and he takes half of Superman's powers away and Superman is trained by I Ching because you know, if you got a character (laughs) in your pocket, you bring him out every once in a while. And the idea was at the end of it, Superman's, half as powerful as he used to be but he's still pretty strong and there's no kryptonite which was a crutch that writers relied on and yeah both of those didn't last very long (laughs) soon superman was flying through the universe again and kryptonite i love how they explained it all the kryptonite that had fallen on earth at that point had turned to iron but the stuff that came later didn't of course of course because because superman but he he had Superman. One one of my favorite of the stories is there's this man that owns an island where he's basically keeping slave labor, and Superman goes out. There's a volcano erupting on it, and the old man doesn't believe it. I know the idea of somebody who's really rich not believing that there's a catastrophe happening is far fetched. But bear with me, and the Superman's like, well, I got to save these people. He's like, you're not saving these people. And if you step foot on this property, I'll have you arrested for trespassing. So you have Superman, the most powerful character in comics going, man, what am I going to do? I don't want to break the law, but this is bad. So he has to figure out another way to save everybody. And it, it just made for an interesting story, silly in retrospect, but 
kind of in its own little ethos it 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 was kind of a kind of world breaking for the character and i guess you know um he would have to be depowered a little bit if uh he was going to face muhammad ali in a in a sort of fair fight right <laughs> well that was under a red sunlight <laughs> yeah that was so. under a red sun and boy yeah. muhammad ali beat him like he owed him money i mean it was that was uh that was a brutal fight uh which Spider-Man made fun of soon after that, I might yeah, add. That's right. <laughs> that's they, true. Somebody offered for him to fight uh, uh, Michael Spinks, uh, and he turned him down. So, <laughs> um, All right. So after his run, um, you know, he's, he's successful. Um, I'm not sure exactly why, but he goes to Marvel uh, in 1980 um, and takes over Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and and I, I should say, uh, also while working with DC in an editor capacity, I think he's 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 um, he's he's working with new talent, and one of those new talents is Frank Miller, mm-hmm. and uh, that continues when he goes to work uh, at Marvel because uh, that's when Frank Miller starts doing Spider-Man with him, and then uh, most notably uh, works with um, on Daredevil. Um, with uh, him uh, O'Neill editing right because uh, I think uh, well yeah O'Neill um, wrote Daredevil for a year two years and then uh, and then I think um, uh, that bridged the gap between Frank's run on on that book I think mm-hmm. he also worked on Iron Man during that part and mm-hmm. he actually introduced uh, Obadiah Stane to the series uh-huh. from the Iron, first Iron Man movie so Jim, and guilted Joe Casada into a check uh, when the movie came out. My dad, <laughs> one of my favorite stories. If I'm correct, and I apologize if 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 I get this wrong, uh, but uh, Denny was very open about his uh, his alcoholism. Yes, yes, yes he was. Yes, and I believe he took. He said in an interview that he took an editorial position because he needed stability in his life to kind of get over that. And I think that's when he went to Marvel because they offered him a staff position. Cause like you said, he was writing Spider-Man. He was writing, uh, I think he did some Dr. Strange as well. He did a team up with the Punisher uh, in one of the Spider-Man either specials or annuals, mm-hmm. but it was as capacity as an editor that I think he kind of got evened out a little bit. And I think that's why, when he was working on Iron Man, he had Tony relapse into his alcoholism because he didn't think they dealt with it properly. Uh, he, he, and, you know, to a certain extent, if you read Demon in a Bottle, Tony, it's, it's like a, it's like a episode of the Brady's in the late eighties where Marsha's an alcoholic at the beginning of the episode, but at the uh. end she's fine. And they never, <laughs> you're right in his wheelhouse. You're right in his wheelhouse. Right there. <laughs> In Marsha's defense, though, that was fake Marsha. <laughs> but in, in, but he he thought that it was to, you know put up in a nice little bow a little too easily. So not only does he have Tony fall off the wagon, he puts James Rhodes into the Iron Man armor for the first time. For the first time, and that like when you think of what Denny O'Neill did, not only did he have the first black green lantern he had the first black iron man too yep 
And I, that came, I don't think, we, I don't think we, that character would have had the legs he had later if that didn't happen in the 80s. That, I think we, we skipped over it in, in our Green Lantern talk. But yeah, John Stewart was introduced mm-hmm. as, as part of that run. Yep. Green Lantern. Yeah. Yep, during that era. And I, I you know, he, think of the unenviable task. He He's editing Daredevil. And he's basically put in a position where he has to choose between Roger McKenzie, who was writing the book, and Frank Miller, who was drawing the book. And he goes, I'm going to go with the kid uh, uh, drawing it because that's what's getting it. And then he has to follow that as a writer. Yep. (laughs) And they're not bad issues of Daredevil either. No, no. No. They're not. Um, It it is, yeah. It is like an, it sort of feels like an interlude, though. Um, But, yeah. Yeah. the other thing that's I I didn't know this until uh, after he passed and I saw headlines with this uh, when he was at Marvel uh, due to the licensing they had and making the Transformers uh, comic and all that he he was the one that named Optimus Prime. Yep. Yeah, it's one of those things where um, was it Hasbro that originally did GI Joe and Transformers? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, well, when they came to, to, to Marvel Comics, they had nothing. So basically, it was up to the, the creative people at Marvel to name all these characters. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of funny when you think about it. Yeah, that, that was often the case with those toy line comic books. It's like, I don't know, it's a bunch of toys. You make the story, you make it up. <laughs> it's and boxes hitting boxes. What he was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think he was pretty humble about it, too, as far as Optimus Prime goes. I, I know uh, Kevin Smith... Uh, asked him about he's like you created the name Optimus Prime and Denny was like did I I guess I did yeah whatever (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay so and then then uh, in 86 he goes back to DC Uh, comes the editor uh, is the editor of all the bat books Um, and he's he's there until like until the turn of the century right he's there until Mm -hmm. 2000 Um. He uh, he introduces a new series with the question. Uh, he introduces a new Batman series called Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, which is a lot allows a lot more uh, freedom for artists and creators to interpret uh, Batman stories, so that there's not that strict continuity. Um, but the one thing that that here I think you know it's I don't think he, it was a master plan of his. But I do sort of love how how like the seeds are sown throughout like his run because um, uh, his time editing there because Legends of the Dark Knight I think one of the first miniseries that they did or one of the first story arcs was Venom mm-hmm. uh, where he introduces Venom and then a year or so later then we get Batman Sword of Azrael which introduces Azrael it's a miniseries and at the time nobody thought anything of any of this. Like they just didn't know that they like um, had any, they were going to have any sort of repercussions later on, but it, you know, it was shortly after Batman sort of the Azrael, I think the year after that, where like <laughs> those, those two series would become very important uh, because then we would oh, yeah. get night, nightfall. Yeah, Venom was a third attempt to tell that story. He had he had wanted to do it uh, two other times. Uh, he didn't feel like he got it quite right. But it was basically, I'm going to make Batman an addict uh, yeah. and deal with that. And if you read that story, it's harrowing. It really is. It's 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 got 
Listen, it Trevor Von Eden and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez art. I mean, it's just like two people you would never think of putting together and it comes out great. His time of editing Batman is interesting because if you look at like the first two years of his editing Batman, that is some all over the place stuff. He brought Max Allen Collins on as a writer first. That didn't work out. Uh, Jim Starlin comes on. Uh, and me and a friend are going through this on one of my shows right now and does the equalizer meets Batman where it's mostly dirty, dirty criminal eighties stuff. Uh, and then over in detective, you have Mike W. Barr doing the Batman 60 series in the eighties followed by Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle coming on. Mm -hmm. And it was really only after Jason Todd died that I think the bat titles became what they were. And that just so happened to, to take place in 1989 when the Batman <laughs> film comes out. So, and you have this like huge, huge, all these huge events going on with the bat books. I mean, as a Batman fan, it was terribly exciting during this time because you had, you know, death of the family. You, uh, you had, um, killing uh, joke. Kill, thank you. That's what I was trying to think of killing joke um and and just it seemed like there was every other story was like something that was like really a big deal um and then at, you know culminating uh i think which the event that actually got me back in the comics after college which was nightfall and then if you which just look there? at the, the oh, empire ahead, sorry, the, the, the the empire that kind of grew out of the bat books you know when you look at what what happened in the 90s that you know through the 70s and 80s there'd be multiple bat books but it was just there were batman books we had batman we had detective we had brave and the bold you get into this o'neill run when he's steering the ship now in the late 80s into the 90s and now there's a long-running robin series and catwoman series yep. and nightwing series and and asriel and birds of prey and and the the, the Bat family expanded like never before. Yeah, and they're all consistent, I think, uh, mm -hmm. because I was getting all of those books and none of them, like, you know, I mean, all of them were good reads. Um, and so when they crossed over, you know, there wasn't like this weird feeling and they weren't, you know, continuous. Like the Superman books were all like numbered and yep. all like four of those books were, you know, you, know, you read them as chapters in, a, in an ongoing story where these titles were unique to themselves, but yet all sort of fit into this universe that he was holding over, which I thought mm -hmm. was pretty exactly. amazing. Yeah, he, he, it was, if you look at the Superman books as kind of the alpha, the, the Batman books were the Omega, where Superman managed to get creative people to work together, producing what is ostensibly a weekly comic to where Denny O'Neill's like, eh, we're not going to do that. So I'm going to get a guy that's going to do creepy, kooky, and altogether ooky style stories. I'm going to put him with Kelly Jones. I'm going to have Chuck Dixon do whatever the heck he wants on three or four titles and just pair him with some fantastic artists and he'll do the detective stories. And then you got Alan Grant over in Shadow of the Bat doing the psychologically driven stories. So you could read all three and it's great, or you could just read one part of it and it's yep. great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alan Grant working. I think one of the, 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 mo the big writers here um, uh, during this time period was Chuck Dixon. And, uh, and then, you know, allowing after nightfall uh, for um, uh, was it uh, Kelly Jones and was it Doug Munch to take Doug Munch, yeah, yeah, for a while, which was amazingly stylized and and a, a big shock too, and yet it worked. Um, 
And I really appreciate his, uh, you know, we talk about, and it's, it's easier to do talk about his time writing and the stories that he's responsible for and the characters he created. But I think editing those books in particular and his, his being able to handle these crossovers from nightfall to, to no man's land, which was an epic, like Mm -hmm. year long, multi <laughs> multi-part multi-title like i mean one of the largest crossovers i think that's ever been attempted to this day and it just seemed really smooth like there wasn't right too much uh, that was bumpy about it like it, it's, it was a master at that mm-hmm. yeah the, the comparison i always make is he was a player that became a coach mm, and yeah. because of that he assembled he he assembled a creative team that could work together but work on their own and then through being the batman group editor and having like guys like uh jordan b gorfinkel and darren vincenzo and i I believe that's one of them you know editing the side titles but everyone's kind of working on the same in the same universe it's like dc in the 90s as connected as it was it was also very much a bunch of fiefdoms Yep. And the really? bad fiefdom, yeah. When when you really look at it, they they all crossed over, but the Superman people dealt with Superman, and the mm-hmm. Batman people dealt with Batman, and you didn't have a whole lot of crossover with that. Denny O'Neill did not want Batman in the Justice League, uh, and and if you if you look at if you look at the early crossovers that DC did, yeah, Batman wasn't really a big part of those. He like had one issue of an Invasion. Uh, two issues of Millennium, and that was it. It wasn't until like Zero Hour that bat and the the culture at DC changed that the the Bat books started getting dragged into it. But it, I, it was under O'Neill's tenure that they decided, okay, we're going to do Zero Hour, and in the retcon, Batman's an urban legend, and nobody knows if he exists or not, mm-hmm. which was weird and doesn't work for me. But you know <laughs> what? They did it. Um, <laughs> they did. <laughs> putting that genie back in the bottle right <laughs> um all right so we're gonna have to wrap up pretty soon but before we go i want to ask you guys just two more questions regarding uh denny and your thoughts on first of all um is there anything either you know prior to the, the, what we've covered um or during what we've covered or even after what we covered that you, uh, you feel is notable of denny's career I think we probably glanced over the question way too quickly. So uh, we should throw out at least a, a little more of a mention of his work on the question. Cause that was really, what, a, what is the question? <laughs> <laughs> that was really a special series and, and kind of a, a, a tie to his, uh, his roots back at Charlton comics is that was when DC acquired the old Charlton characters and uh, they put Denny on writing a new question series, which was a, very much a departure from uh, certainly the the philosophy of the questions creator Steve Ditko. Uh, Denny certainly went another way with it, uh, but really made it something special and such a cool character. And uh, that even has translated to like I think everybody loved the question on Justice League Unlimited, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and that the, the popularity of that character, I think, is due in large part to what Denny did with it. That's cool. Also, uh, Richard Dragon, we should mention as well, that Denny, back in the Kung Fu craze of the 70s, Denny O'Neill wrote a novel about Richard Dragon, Kung Fu fighter, and then brought the character 
to DC and had like a mid seventies run on that comic. And uh, uh, the bronze tiger also came out of that, that uh, novel of his, and those both became long writing kind of supporting characters at DC. Uh, Michael Bailey, anything uh, from you? I, I was, I was going to mention the question, but then Kevin beat me to it. Uh, mm-hmm. That is a transformative series. Even now uh, I, I believe it holds up extremely well. Yeah, uh, if you want to see, I think if you want to see Denny's like politics really put into play in, in a comic, read the question. <laughs> oh yeah, it feels almost like I mean he's tapping into himself in a lot of ways as the main character in that one more than anything else I think of that I can think of that he wrote. Uh, I I, th- I think of of his time as editor and the writers that he brought in that became some of my favorite writers. Uh, you know, we we mentioned Chuck Dixon. Uh, we met, you know, Alan Grant, uh, who initially worked with John Wagner, but then John Wagner's like, I'm not going to get any money about this. And then 1989 <laughs> happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he brought Doug Minch back after firing him, essentially. Uh, but also in No Man's Land, he brings in Greg Rucka and Devin Grayson, yes. uh, who both, I think, had an imprint on the turn of the century Batman books. Yep. Uh, so I, I, I think... Did he bring in Gale too? Was that is that him? That, uh, that was a little after a little him. After that, okay. I wasn't sure if she started during Denny's time. Yeah, now. yeah. Gale, um, Gale was really brought into DC Comics because of Jeff Johns and Jeff Loeb. Yeah, okay. From what right. I understand, yeah, that, so that, yeah, that's a good call. Okay, but no, but when you when you look at the idea that he was able to juggle all of those titles and make them consistently good. I, I think that's the mark of not only a true creator, but, you know, an editor of what an editor is supposed to do is get the right people into the right positions, let them tell their stories, but kind of bang them back into play if they start getting out of bounds. Yeah. Uh, Mike, anything that we've left out that you, that you want to mention? No, Denny was just a a very, very complex man who was very, very, very talented. And, you know, he, his work, you know, shapes what you see in the movies nowadays. You wouldn't, you know, if there was no Denny O'Neill, you would have never gotten Batman, the movie or Batman begins. And, you know, all these different versions of Batman that we see on the big screen nowadays, that's thanks to Denny O'Neill. And you basically, you know, when you see it and you're watching and enjoying it, this is one man whose vision was guided, but brought to life, you know, a whole universe of the Batverse that we're living with right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So if there's, if there's uh you know, I know it's hard to pick, but if there's one book or something, a trade or a run or anything that you feel that people should check out uh, from Denny's uh, huge prolific work. Um, what would that, what would that be? And when in particular, uh, just pick, uh, you know, something that uh, if people are listening to this, that either maybe they not, they're not aware of, or that, you know, is sort of essential um, reading. Uh, start with you, Kevin. I would send people to the Rachel Ghoul storyline the batman oh, yes. the original racial ghoul stories with where we introduced talia and racial ghoul because i mean you, 
uh, more so than the Green Lantern, Green Arrow stuff. I, I think the Rachel Gould story holds up. It's it's a little a uh, little easier to read, I think, to our, our modern sensibilities. And as Michael said, it plays a little James Bondian with the, the world traveling aspect involved, plus a little detective work, uh, plus just the introduction of this major character who has had such a lasting impact uh, over the last, uh, you know, over the years at, at DC and beyond. And, you know, the, 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 uh, the last round of Batman movies, the Christopher Nolan movies, Certainly, uh, you know, those were Rachel Ghoul was there, and then in, in the TV series, now both in Gotham and then spilling over into uh, Arrow, what a major part Rachel Ghoul played in those. So, a very important character, and uh, that's uh, I, I reread that story just this week. So, uh, I'd go back to the uh, original uh, Batman Rachel Ghoul stories. Awesome, awesome, Michael Bailey. Uh, I would, I would recommend Venom. But what I would recommend, it's it's with a caveat, try to track down the original trade paperback, uh, not the current one. Uh, it's, hmm. it's still pretty cheap on eBay because mm-hmm. the new one does not have the introduction that Denny wrote for the original one. Oh, uh, and, I, and, I, and I think that it, it's really informative of the story. But it's it, it just read it because it's, like I said, it's one of the most harrowing Batman stories I have ever read in my entire life. Yeah, um, yeah uh <laughs> the fact that he it yeah he fails to save that girl is uh, devastating um, mm-hmm. and it just gets it just gets more devastating from there <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> like that's the light part <laughs> that's just the beginning right um but yeah um i i didn't know that about the trade cuz i have the original issues and i've just always gone back to read those but maybe it's worth getting the checking out the trade just to get his intro to it um mike favor um I'm thinking, you know, I was going to do the Green Arrow, Green Lantern crossover. But the episode um, is beautiful. It is beautiful, and it is a great, great story. But I'm actually going to go for his run on the question. Nice. I have it, those three trades, I think. Mm-hmm. It is groundbreaking work. The artwork, the story that Denny wrote is just awesome. And he literally took you know, from a very clean cut type, you know, reporter type, you know, person for Vic, for Vic, was it Vic Sage, right? Yeah. And, and so, and then taking him to finding, you know, into becoming, you know, at the end of the series, he took it all, he wrote the whole series all the way to the end. And, you know, he was, a, had long hair. He took the character and, the character ended up dying at the end mm. of the series. And so he literally took it from birth to death and it was just awesome. He died at the yeah. beginning of the series too. That's very true. Actually. <laughs> Good point. Vic Sage dies a lot. <laughs> also for, for Watchmen fans, there's an interesting chapter in that question series. Cause the, the first time a, a Watchmen character appears amongst regular DC universe characters was in Denny's question series. There's a dream sequence with yep. Rorschach, which yep. was appropriate because the question was the inspiration for the character of Rorschach. That's a whole different story on itself right there. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. a, it, it is very crazy. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, my pick for recommendation for people to check out is uh, the DC comics guide to writing comics by Denny. Ah. Mm-hmm. Um 
this is essential, uh, I think, reading for anybody who's certainly interested in writing for comics, writing stories, and period. Um, and even if you're a fan of comics, I think you can learn a lot from this book. I've read it, uh, I don't know, countless times. Uh, I met, you know, when I met Denny, I had him sign it. Um, but my, my, it's, it's, it's wearing out. Um, but, um, it is, like I said, I've read other, uh, comic book, uh, guides by great folks, uh, Alan Moore, um, Will Eisner, Peter David, um, and many others and, and they're good. Uh, but this one is accessible and it tells you like what you need to know, but it also gives you a lot of freedom and kind of explains, you know, how, how comics work in a way that the others kind of don't. And, um, I, I recommend it a lot. And, uh, if you'll, if uh, just humor me, because I'm going to uh, end the segment with a, a quote from the introduction of part one of this, where Denny just says, uh, cause he was a great teacher, great teacher. Um, and I think that's one of, uh, his, uh, big skills and successes as an editor as well. Um, but he says, uh, he starts with part one. He says, here's what I'd like you to do for me. Make me laugh, make me cry. Tell me my places in the world. Lift me out of my skin and place me in another. Show me places I have never visited and carry me to the ends of time and space. Give my demons names and help me confront them. Demonstrate for me possibilities I've never thought of and present me with heroes who will give me courage and hope. Ease my sorrows and increase my joy. Teach me compassion, entertain and enchant and enlighten me. Basically, tell me a story. And that's, that's what he did. That's what he did better than most. So, um, so with that being said, uh, I appreciate you guys uh, joining us to uh, tribute uh, this great guy. And uh, we will be right back after this message to close the show. Everybody, Michelle here with the Iconic Rock Talk Show, back after a little hiatus. Lots of uh, benefit news in the music news this week. Um, Adam Schlesinger, who was the frontman of Fountains of Wayne and passed away April 1st at age 52 of COVID-19. Um, his friends and fellow musicians are paying tribute to him with an album called Saving for a Custom Van. It has 31 tracks and it's available exclusively at bandcamp.com. Uh, of course, it benefits COVID-19 relief. Also, Lizzo has teamed up with the charity contest outfit Prizio, and for a minimum donation of just 10 bucks, you can be in a drawing for a VIP concert experience with her um, when concerts start up again. Um, hotel, airfare, whole nine yards. And in the meantime, she'll video call you and send you a custom vase in the shape of I don't know. What could it be? This is Lizzo. What could it be? Yes, her booty. Her booty. Um, this fund. This is one of the more unique fundraisers for uh, the Black Church Food Security Network, the Minneapolis Sanctuary Movement, and Black Women Speak. Just go to prizio.com and click the link on the homepage. And on Monday, Global Citizen and the European Commission announced... A concert that's going to happen on Saturday, this coming Saturday, the 27th, um, 
It is not a fundraiser. It is intended to um, to bring awareness to how the uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic has um, disproportionately affected marginalized communities. Uh, it's going to be hosted by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, uh, Billy Porter, Hugh Jackman, and many others will make appearances. Uh, the musical performances will be by Miley Cyrus, Shakira, and together, after they're done, everybody's heads will explode, uh, Jay Balvin, Justin Bieber, and Quavo, Jennifer Hudson, Coldplay, Usher, Christine and the Queens, Chloe Tamsale, and Yemi Alade. Uh, here in the U.S., it will air on NBC and iHeartMedia. Um, you can stream it on Apple, Roku, Tidal, Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, and other platforms. Uh, check your local listings, of course. Um, th- there is a petition available at globalgoalunite.org, um, urging world leaders to make universal COVID health care available. And while you're there, uh, you can enter a, a drawing to have a personal experience with some notable artists. You don't have to donate. You just have to sign a petition or um, tweet a selfie. Depends on the artist. And when you've done that, you're entered into a drawing for a personal experience with that artist. You can win a virtual cooking class with Padma Lakshmi. Where else are you going to get that? A virtual happy hour with Adam Lambert. How awesome would that be, you guys? Uh, a makeup tutorial with Asuka from WWE, lots more. So go to globalgoalunite.org and check that out. This has been the Iconic Rock Talk Show moment. The blog is iconicrocktalkshow.wordpress.com. My current post, I am talking about a very uh, timely artist and a big influence on hip-hop, Gil Scott Heron. So that is the Iconic Rock Talk Show moment, and we will catch you next time. Everyone these days could use a little support, and your friends at the ESO Network are no different with the ESO Network Patreon. The cool thing is, is when you help support us, it's you who will benefit. With four tiers starting for as little as 25 cents a week, you can listen to some of your favorite network podcasts early, hear exclusive content, maybe get some ESO swag, or even possibly take a shot at the geek seat. All you need to do is sign up at patreon.com backslash ESO network. Welcome to a geek girl's take. I'm your host, Angela. And this week, this geek girl is talking about the movie knives out. So I missed seeing knives out when it came to theaters, since I rarely go to the movies by myself and always like to go with a friend. Since it has made its way to Amazon prime, I watched it the first weekend that they had it. I loved this movie and so many of the actors in it are just amazing. And I knew it was going to be good, but the storyline and the cinematography, holy cow, this film is so wonderful and clever and you need to put it on your watch list. Daniel Craig showed me in Logan Lucky that he could do some great accents, and he did it again with Detective Blanc in Knives Out. His accent adds to the quirkiness of the character and just overall cleverness of what he is saying and how he is solving the mystery of what went on in the house the night of Harlan Thromby's death. The storyline of Knives Out is the Thromby family getting together for Harlan Thromby's 85th birthday. Harlan Thromby is a world-renowned mystery author. And we see the actions of the night leading up to the death of Harlan Thromby. 
The entire movie is Detective Blanc trying to figure out if the death was a murder or a suicide. We see the crazy dysfunctional family react and interact with each other and watch the crazy mystery unfold. And in the end, we find out exactly what happened. This film is amazingly written and very clever, and I've tried so hard to give a good review of it while not spoiling it for you since you should all go watch it right now. Like, it's a great late night weekend movie to just pop some popcorn and sit down and enjoy. Well, thanks for listening to A Geek Girl's Take. What will I talk about next week? Well, you're all going to have to listen to find out. So that is going to wrap up another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. We want to thank our guests for being here tonight. Of course, Kevin, you know, you almost have a cot up here now. You're Come here on, tonight. you guys know. You just uh, push that big red button on the side of the, the station and uh, summon me. I shall be here anytime. Happy to uh, hang out with you guys. Uh, always fun. Absolutely. We've, we've decided to name that arm of the station the chicken wing. <laughs> well we have the chicken signal also so you know the big red yes, buttons activates yes. it fire up the chicken signal we will be here they need us on the station come cornflake <laughs> to the cave <laughs> yes bring the iced coffee awesome. <laughs> oh man i have i got a big glass of iced coffee going in could you tell you could probably tell right over, right, right over the internet i heard the coffee cubes it's okay yeah 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 um, yeah, I, I might as well throw out a plug uh, for the Flapcast while I'm here, because that's where you can normally find me here on the ESO network, is on my show with Cornflake. We do the Flapcast, a completely ridiculous, silly show here on ESO every week. Check us out at flopcast.net. Excellent. And, of course, Mr. Michael Bailey. Uh, yeah, you can find me over at the Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network at fortressofbaileytude.com. I do need to do t-shirts at some point. But yeah, anytime you guys want to want to have me on to talk about something, I'm, I'm kind of like Kevin. Uh, I, I may not have a button you can press where I'm sitting at my desk and suddenly I'm rolling into uh, ESO, but I think I'm closer than Kevin is, like, spatially, so maybe that would work. I don't know. <laughs> it might now, help. Now, now, what do you guys have going on 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 uh, on your shows? Now, you've you've just done uh, talk. You've just talked about Denny, right? In a recent episode, yeah, over on the Overlook Dark Knight, which is one of my Batman shows, because for some reason I have two Batman shows and two Superman shows because I just can't <laughs> stop myself. Uh, Andrew Leyland and I, who have we have been talking about the Jim Starlin run of Batman mm. uh, and having a lot of fun with that. We we, we recorded our cult episode. Oh, oh so cool. good couple of weeks oh. ago and oh my god could we not not talk about politics when, <laughs> and, and, and current events while talking about that story uh and andy and i just talk about stories we think are overlooked uh or in the case of the joker's five-way revenge which we did on a crossover looked over uh and uh from crisis to crisis which is my post-crisis superman show that i do with my friend jeffrey taylor is coming back soon with some new episodes including a commentary for the two and a half hour version of the death and return of superman animated film um two and a half hour uh, commentaries are not fun i just want to point that out <laughs> that's sitting there for almost three hours just having to talk and uh yeah 
No, totally understand that. Totally understand that. No, it's it's great stuff. I listened to at least two of your podcasts, sir. So it's kind of fun. Awesome. I appreciate that. No problem. It's in my rotation. It's like, ah, more Batman. Awesome. And Superman, of course, because, you know, that's the best stuff to talk about. Okay. He's my favorite. No, really? I didn't. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm shocked there, dude. All right, Mr. Mike, we made it through another one. We did, and as always, it's my pleasure. Anything you want to shout out about, sir? Uh, I'm going to give a belated uh, uh, shout out to all the fathers out there. Look, I know that Father's Day is a uh, quote-unquote Hallmark holiday, you know. Oh, uh, totally. But, um, you know, it does have roots um, otherwise. And, and I do think that, you know, it's it's cool that at least one day of the year, you know, we uh, spotlight uh, fathers of all kinds. Uh, whether they be biological or, or even, you know, pet fathers or whatever. Um, but um, I think it's cool. I certainly, you know, um, respect and, and give a big shout out to my own father, my brother-in-law, you know, all, all fathers everywhere. Mike, yourself, you're holding, holding your baby as we speak. I could, Aww. I could see it. I could see it. <laughs> I'm holding my child. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, um, you know, uh uh deadbeat dad just shouldn't shouldn't be a thing so um anybody who uh takes the responsibility of being a father seriously needs to be commended oh totally but you know it also depends on the situation that the father finds himself in so you know sometimes deadbeat dads aren't exactly what you make them out to be so every situation is different as we like to say here on the network um quick shout out um to people who do listen to the Kevin Smith Fat Man on Batman, or it's called Batman Beyond, Fat Man Beyond now. Uh, basically, mm. they did a archive of interviews that Kevin had done with Denny. And he ended up putting out just recently all of them compiled. It's almost four hours worth of interviews with Denny O'Neill over time that he did. And it's just pretty frippin' amazing. Um, you know, how candid Denny was to talk to, especially, and, you know, him and Kevin just riffing and just talking. It was really amazing. You could find that on the Smodcast Network, or you could also find it up on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to shows. Just look up Fat Man Beyond, and I think that was one of his last episodes that he's done. So definitely check out the Denny O'Neill story. It's pretty awesome. That was great. Yeah, I listened to that whole the, the whole three and a half hours as well. It was terrific. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's uh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Every, listened, every minute of it. Oh, Fortress it is. Daily to uh, Overlook Dark Knight about Denny O'Neill. I listened to that one as well. So Michael, uh, you and Andrew, nice job on that show as well. Yep. Appreciate that. John Suntress also released five hours over two oh, episodes wow. of wow. his interviews with Denny O'Neill on Word Balloon. Oh, yeah. So uh, the so. stuff is out there if you want to yeah. learn more about the guy. <laughs> it's pretty amazing stuff, folks. And mm-hmm. he 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 had some his history with so much in the comic industry. And it's just like, and then I did this and then I did. And it's just and he's just throwing it out there. And you're just like sitting there like, <gasps> wow, you know, the whole time. It's pretty awesome. Right. We talked about the pillars of this business. And I really think that he's he's up there. On a personal level and on on just a uh, pop culture level. Oh, very much so. And even Kevin Smith said it. If they ever did a Mount Rushmore of comic legends, 
Denny would definitely be up there. I could definitely I, see I, it. I, I would. You know what, guys? I, we should we should do a whole show about Denny O'Neill. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> that would be awesome. You know, we so all... so same time next week, guys. Yeah, exactly. Let's do it. <laughs> exactly. This is the Earth Station O'Neill cast from now on. <laughs> So I think it could be O stands for O'Neill. Oh, exactly. Oh, Neil. That's awesome. I like it. But uh, we're going to be, you know, definitely wanting to hear from you guys. Let us know what you guys think. Please write us at earthstation1 at esonetwork.com. We definitely would love to hear your thoughts on Denny O'Neill. We'd love to hear some of your favorites. I'm sure we missed some of the stuff out there. There's, we couldn't do a show long enough you know, not hit, you know, we just did an hour. We could have easily done six hours standing up on our heads. It would have been easy to do. So I don't know if that would have been as easy for me, but. Well, it would have been fun to see at least. Especially <laughs> <laughs> because we do have the cameras on tonight. So it's pretty awesome. But uh, please join us again next week. We would definitely love you guys to stop by. We're actually going to do another Facebook Live episode next week. We are going to be doing stories celebrating diversity. So we thought it'd be only proper to do a Facebook Live to get as many people involved as we can. So please join us and it'll be next Monday night, which will be the 29th, if I'm correct, of... That'll be the 29th of June, and that will be at 8 p.m. Eastern up on Facebook Live. And then, of course, we'll be out our regular podcast on Tuesday for our Patreon listeners. And, of course, then Thursday to everybody else. So until then, my name is Mike Faber. Please be safe. Take care of yourselves. And, you know, be good. Peace. And we'll see you next time. Ciao. And we're done. Boom. You've been listening to the Air Station One podcast, a show by fans for fans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our show up on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are found. While you're up there, please rate us and remember to leave feedback. It would greatly be appreciated. And remember to tell your friends all about us while you're at it. Air Station One is available on most social media sites where you can join some really great topics or chats. Help support our show by shopping through our Amazon.com link or purchasing very cool ESO Network clothing and merchandise at our T Public store. Links to both are found on the top of our ESO Network webpage. Become a patron of the ESO Network by backing us up on Patreon for as little as 25 cents a week. Go to patreon.com slash ESO Network to sign up. We want to hear from you. Please write us at earthstation1 at esonetwork.com or call us at 404-963-9057. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the Earth Station One podcast. Peace, and we're done. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the TeePublic store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.